Whose Golden Globe-nominated comedy casual returns as Alex, Valerie, and Laura try to rebuild their lives outside of the home, but new friends and lovers can only do so much to distract them from a shared history of dysfunction. From director Jason Reitman and writer Xander Lehman, all new episodes of Casual are now streaming on Hulu. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined in Los Angeles by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. I'm actually in her office. We are at looking a, at each other. Looking at each other in in your headquarters. So this is, I'm on your turf here, and it's a pretty good place to be. Um, I've been out here for about a week. Taking some meetings. and First you uh, went to Seattle. First I went to Seattle, did, had a nice time up there, and then I came down here and I've been kind of making the rounds, and uh, it's been great. Um, Seattle was a nice sort of prelude to coming out to L.A. And, and doing some of the stuff I've been doing out here, because while it's not what I would say is sort of a, a top-tier festival, it is a great place for different people in the film community to gather and kind of talk about how things are going in a sort of casual environment. So, I like that festival. It's yeah. a sprawling, large, it's sort of on a scale like San Francisco. It goes sure. on for a very long time. It's a very similar vibe in the sense that you have this great city. It's a major metropolitan have, city. It's a great film going town, if not an industry. Yeah, talent I mean, so what I do in Seattle every year is I organize, help organize a couple of different panels. I make some suggestions for some guests and things like that. And so the last few years, we've helped put together a distribution panel and a film criticism panel. And so this year, the distribution panel was at 11 a.m. on a Saturday. And it was part of this thing called Catalyst. SIF Catalyst was like a new kind of weekend convention as part of the festival. And 11 a.m. on a Saturday, it was completely full. And I think so that tells you about you it. So, so Raj or Rajendra Roy from MoMA, the, the chief curator of film, was the moderator. Uh, they had Kent Sanderson from Bleecker Street. There was uh, Danielle, an acquisitions, an acquisitions guy. We, there was an acquisitions person from The Orchard. Uh, there was uh, Dylan Marchetti, who's now at Wellgo, used to be at Variance. Uh, so, and, and Rob Williams for, from Participant. So it was, a, it was a great variety of voices, a really interesting kind of spectrum of possibilities. What and did you learn? Uh, Well, I guess what, what I found so fascinating was that there used to be such a hostile reputation for the nature of, the, of distribution and, and what you really get out of uh, hearing from that. Well, the the Harvey Weinstein mythology that I think a lot of filmmakers are aware of is that getting distribution for your film is not an easy thing to do, and these are not easy people to work with. And there was a sense of a, almost a collaborative process through which these different distributors are complementary to each other. You know, maybe you want to go with a more traditional theatrical approach like Bleecker Street, or maybe you're interested in, in, in working with somebody like IFC or The Orchard. And All these different companies seem to have different ways of working with different kinds of movies. And I, I think hearing that the variety of approaches on a single panel in some ways was, you know, provided sort of an idealistic way of looking at the, at the state of independent film distribution. We don't always hear that from people. You love that. I love that. Well, and, and I have to tell you, it was complimentary to uh, Ted Hope's keynote speech, which... Uh, didn't go into a ton of detail about what he's doing at Amazon Studios, but Ted Hope is a very idealistic guy, and I thought that it it, it made sense to have somebody like that speaking to a room full of filmmakers, because whereas 
you know, there are ways that you can cast doom and gloom on the state of filmmaking, especially as it's a more and more of a competitive landscape. It is a very welcoming community, and when you isolate it and you put it in a room like that, you really do get the sense that the community survives irrespective of, you know, exactly what the hard business realities are. And the uh, film criticism panel, which we did, I think spoke to that as well. We had Lindsay Barr from AP. We had this this great guy, Dave Chen, from Slash Film. And the kind of scope of, of voices, you know, John DeFore from Hollywood Reporter, uh, it gives you the sense that, you know, people, in terms of people who talk about movies today professionally, even there, there's this sense of almost like a cooperative process. Like, okay, we all like doing this. We all like this medium. So let's just figure out the best ways of making it work with the resources at our disposal. And now, John DeFore has been a sort of professional freelance critic, and I know he used to contribute to The Hollywood Reporter. But what uh, my sense of David Chen is he's a podcaster who has a day job. I, exactly. I don't think he gets paid. To right. He doesn't get paid, much. but but Slash Film is still a site that has a tremendous amount of influence, and uh, I think also in some ways it can have more influence than a trade review because it's speaking to a different kind of audience. It's a consumer audience. Exactly. It's not a trade audience. Those right. are two different functions. Exactly. I mean, in 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 that sense, I do think they're complementary. So there is something really fascinating to some degree about the fragmentation of our media landscape and the way that different people can have different roles to play in the way that they champion movies or other kinds of culture. The online universe especially espouses more enthusiastic fans than journalistic professionals. Sure. And and in our universe, I would say that we're we're IndieWire, in a way that's very different from Slash Film, has become more professional as it has matured. And even though it has retained the organic... Um, community of the film world, it, it's also existing in, in the trade universe now, more than it did at the beginning. Yeah, and, and I think those <laughs> terms don't even mean the same things that they used to, because it, it's a much more porous world out yeah, there. Yeah. You know? Well, the online world especially. Yeah. As so, the trades have had to learn how to navigate that no, exa- in a way that we always do. Exactly, and the other thing to take into account is just that you know, we're all dealing with the same kind of challenges involving the news cycle. You know, it's 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 hard to tell where the the stories that belong in a certain publication end. You know, you start seeing Variety or the Hollywood Reporter reporting on Orlando, and there's this question of you know, are they are they reporting on it the same way CNN is doing it, or is there an entertainment hook? And you know, kind of examining these different sorts of ways in which a news cycle operates and, and where where they begin to be a part of our world is kind of fascinating because everybody's sort of chasing the same stories after a while. Well, so. I think the, the... All right, I was having a conversation with someone about this yesterday. There's a balancing act that has to occur. But, you know, if you want to succeed in, in this world, you know, we all have... Uh, art and commerce, you know, balancing acts that we have to to be involved in. So, so if IndieWire has, has and any other website for that matter has has enterprise stories, longer quality stories, good writing, you know, that's all good. But we also have to put up some stuff that's going to be clickbait, right. and it's a question of how high quality we can get away with that being. But it's it's a it's a you know a lot of sites, a lot of sites we admire you know, haven't been willing to make those compromises in order to 
pull in the eyeballs that they need to pull in. And this is more than ever. If you don't play the game, you lose. Right. No, it's a really interesting kind of conundrum. The more that you look at different stories that are out there, you can kind of contemplate what the thinking is behind why this story and why now. But I do bring up Orlando because I think we should talk about it as it's played out in the, in, in the in our corner of, of the media cycle because there have been some really fascinating stories about that tragedy that do pertain to what we do. Uh, specifically about some of the movies that are out there. Well, there's some gun movies. Some I documentaries. At, at um, Sundance. Um, Speaking is difficult. AJ yeah. Schnack? AJ Schnack's short film, he, uh, which was part of Laura Portress's uh, Field of Vision series, uh, which deals with uh, gun violence and specifically one, one shooting incident. So that's one that's out there that... Is, I think has is that some viewable re- now on yeah. the site. Yeah, and 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 it has renewed currency because of the conversations going on around gun control and remind uh, people of where they can see Field of Vision online. Well, they can go they can go to the website for Field of Vision and you can stream all kinds of stuff on there. So so that that one in particular I think is is you know is, is worth checking out because it it allows people to kind of formulate ways of, of talking about gun control through a personal lens. And for the most part, we're talking in the abstract or you're talking through these immediate terrors rather than talking through the kind of intimate nature of, of how they affect people. Um, but the other story that we were talking about in relation to gun control over the past week was this uh, Katie Couric-produced documentary, Under the Gun. Uh, that was at Sundance Which also. was also at Sundance, and, and it was one in which the NRA is basically trying to take this movie down by saying that they, there, was some, there was a scene in the movie that completely misrepresented a certain exchange. The filmmaker says, uh, I guess so, but it's serving an agenda. And it's just, it's fascinating to me how people look at what a movie can do to affect change, and they don't see the strategy, they just see it as, you know, propaganda or whatever. I mean, it, 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 it well, completely it's misses the point. Well, it's interesting how a big organization, if it, what happened, all right, Alex Gibney, you know, got into, you know, when he did Enron back in the day, you know, he, he, got, in, he got into, you know, some pushback from the corporation. And, and, on, uh, and this happens to him all the time, poor man, you know. I don't feel that bad. I don't either. Uh, He can hold his own. But it was a little scary when he when he was doing the um, Scientology doc because they really really went after him and and attempted to taint the movie. And that's what's going on here with the NRA, which doesn't like the subject matter of this movie and is trying to affect how it's being perceived. And if you don't dig down past the headlines to actually find, I mean, thankfully IndieWire did and wrote a story about it, you, you wouldn't know where the source of the criticism was coming from necessarily. Right, no, absolutely. It just looks like maybe somebody just did something wrong. Right, across the, yeah, that's all exactly. you get. And, and I think that's scary. I would also say that, that that's true for just the way in which these issues play out in the media cycle. I mean, we're being told a story that's, that's shaped by different kinds of influential people, right? When somebody chooses to filibuster for 12 hours straight about gun regulation, that's a great dra- dramatic moment. I mean, and all I do is think about Mr. Smith goes to exactly. Washington. Jimmy so, Stewart was so there the, is something the model for that. Exactly. There's something cinematic about the way that we relate to these kinds of things, and, and, and I think it is worth kind of looking at how different people use the, use that kind of public stage to tell a story, and um, you know, in, in the case of this tragedy, it is it is kind of fascinating to see how 
you know, different people are trying to kind of push the story in different kinds of ways. Well, we're in the middle of a political, uh, a presidential campaign, so it's interesting how that's played out. But also on Twitter, when whenever this kind of tragedy occurs, you see how various people handle it, and I have to keep praising Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda, who just keeps using his little pulpit right. for the right reasons and I, in the right way. Another, another great, I think, cinematic moment is the sonnet that he delivered yes, at exactly, the Tonys. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so he took that stage. He, had, he knew that moment was probably going to be there, and he would have that opportunity. And it had... An, People quote that sonnet. People were affected by that. And it went, whoever didn't watch the, the Tonys saw it online, virally. Right. No, exactly. I mean, this is, this is love, very love, much... Love, 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 love. Yeah, this is very 21st century storytelling in that sense of knowing that you can do something that has an inspirational message and it can go viral in and a sense. And who has the power of words behind yeah. him. This man yeah. knows how to use words. And how to reach and communicate. Absolutely. I still haven't seen the damn thing, but uh, I'm, I'm sold on I've that speech alone. I've been trying to alone. tell Eric that he should <laughs> you know, g give up his hope of seeing the thing, at least in New York for the moment. You know, you know what I would do? I would literally, I would buy tickets to San Diego. Do what I did. Just, just buy <laughs> I'm tickets. I'm just going to be cha Months chasing in Hamilton around the yeah, country. Yeah, you're going to go around point. the globe. You're going to go see it in London. Go to London and see it with him. He's going to be in the London production. I don't know when that guy sleeps. It's just—he's uh... amazing. He's amazing. But anyway, uh, do listen to the soundtrack. It's, it holds up on its own. So what? There, there's some other stuff that's been going on this week in terms of screenings. <laughs> and, uh, you've had a chance to catch up on on some things that are worth talking about. This past week, you, you finally saw The Little Prince, which premiered at Cannes last year, but it, it had a very different release strategy in place. I wish I had seen the film that was in Cannes because this is a very all right, students of animation probably know that all the different animation, uh, com you know, big companies have different personalities. There's Pixar and there's DreamWorks and, you know, Studio Ghibli, you know. But this, this and then there's Illumination over at uh, Universal, which is, is the, the um, Despicable Me and Minions and... And these are movies that have a very European flavor, and the, the, the animators are very European. And then Sony Pictures Classics has picked up some of the French animators, like uh, Triplets of Velville. Mm -hmm. But what you have in a situation like that is you have something with subtitles. And even, even though the Studio Ghibli films sometimes have soundtracks that are dubbed in English, mm -hmm. I always prefer to see the original um, hear what, what the original sounded like with the subtitles. It yeah. just seems more authentic. And that's what my problem with this um, Little Prince, which is a beautiful, beautiful movie. And, but it, it's they dubbed, dubbed it in English. to death. Yeah. And it was okay. going to be released by Paramount, right. but now it's Netflix. It's Netflix. So what happened there? Well, um, there was a deal, a distribution deal of some kind, which Paramount, for whatever reason, was able to... Uh, duck out of, they decided to, to, to go with, with Netflix and let Netflix handle it and, uh, and save themselves whatever that money would have been for a big, wide family movie to be released. Now, it's a big hit all over the world. The movie has done well. I mean, who doesn't love The Little Prince? It's a classic, and the movie is beautiful, lovely, but there's some kind of cultural um, disconnect that I can understand why Paramount decided not to invest 
in in a big release. Well, it just it seems like it reflects this larger anxiety on some level, like where the the studio at one point thought that they had something that they could work with, and then it got to the point where this was just not what they needed to work with. And Netflix has that global reach. They have a different kind of platform. Well, they can reach this sort of family audience in a different way with their algorithms. I'll be very, you know, and, and it won't cost. They'll save the marketing money. That's what it really amounts oh, yeah. to. And what do they what do they need to market? They just throw it up on the home screen with a play button and, and it's a done deal, right? But I still would like to see I would have loved to have seen that French version. And then the other the other one I saw um, this week, uh, which played at Cannes and I missed it there, is uh, Cohen Media, which is a big Francophile company. They love the French and they love uh, classic films and they love um, they're getting into the restoration business as well, and they so they've restored uh, 1992 James Ivory classic uh, Howard's End, which stars um, Helena Bonham Carter and and Emma Thompson as two sisters, and and then Anthony Hopkins and Vanessa Redgrave are the Wilcoxes. And it, I don't know if you remember it, but it was sublimely, deliciously pleasurable to sink into that chair and just immerse myself in that world. I mean, I'm the original Anglophile. <laughs> it's, so it's still, it holds Downton up. Admitted Abbey fan. Yeah, it, right. it holds up in, on that, in it's the so Downton Abbey level. So beautiful. Um, also hard to imagine, honestly, that any studio would make that film now. By but it's going to get re-released. Re it's so. going to have a re-release re in uh, September, late August in New York and early September in L.A., so, I mean, do you think that the release of this movie is primarily tapping into like people like you, who who essentially are saying, you know, you remember the kind of the the wonderful appeal of a movie like that, or is is it an attempt to kind of create a new audience for this movie? I think it's one of those classic, um, you know, um, it's like an anniversary thing, you know, where you where you you create DVD value and and you send it out again and you. You, you remind people of what they loved. Um, I bet people go to see it. I bet the art house audience goes to see it. What's not to like? Well, speaking of reminding people what they love, there's a new Pixar movie opening this week, Finding Dory, which certainly seems to be getting some of the best reactions for a Pixar movie since uh, last year with Inside Out. Good Dinosaur didn't exactly go over in a huge way, but I guess what, what, what I've noticed about the reactions to Finding Dory, and I thought the movie was really solid, is that Inside Out was seen as sort of a class of its own. Finding Dory is seen as a, a kind of, it's, it's weird to say it, but an old school Pixar movie in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's doing something that's kind of fun, and and uh, can be appreciated by a young viewer, but at the same time is operating on that other level where there, there's something subtler happening. That's what they do. I mean, nobody does it better, and nobody has done it more consistently over the years. And some people have been tough on them on some of their sequels. Like me, yeah. But Toy Story 3 is one of the great movies of all time. I'm sorry. Oh, I just turned on. This happens. I hate this. If you, if you go to Metacritic... That they let the trailer run automatically, and there's Dory hopping me. around. Yeah, so I was just looking up the the review on Metacritic at seventy seven, which is good. Not, not too shabby. Not not, but it's not like you know, not next level. Or something. I think what's happening with this movie, I, I mean, I, I would be shocked if it didn't do incredibly well. But it is 
a very light-hearted movie, even though it does have a lot going on in terms of how it speaks to a character with who's essentially developmentally disabled. I mean, Indeed. Her, Dory's Indeed. memory loss becomes this kind of heartbreaking plot point in a big opening sequence that does mirror up in certain ways in terms of it, the passage of time and the kind of the, the sad things that come out of that. But it, but it's, but it's a little light and fun in, in certain moments. I mean, it's a as a piece of animation, I have to say, I what what they did. First of all, they solved the problem, and Bill Deswitz did a nice interview with Andrew Stanton today, that's on the site, um, of of how to deal with her disability as a storytelling device. You right. Know? So they had to figure out that she couldn't be the lead driver. Right. That she had to have a, a, a someone piloting. The story because with her every couple of minutes she forgets what's going on. So yeah. you think about that from a writing so perspective. So she can't be alone. She, I mean, absolutely have exactly the writing challenge was huge. Right. And so they figured out the octopus. And what's great about the octopus, if you know anything about animation, is that it was, it would have been impossible to do just a few years ago. It would have been impossible to do 13 years ago with the right. first Right, the way the guy movie. moves and blends into his surroundings and so it's forth brilliant. is it's but, fun but to watch. But just as an animated thing, yeah. you have, they do what they do on the basis of skeletons. Mm. And it's all figured out, you know, and with a, with a thing like this, it doesn't have a skeleton. It's just constantly right. moving. And it's a septopus, if I'm not mistaken, because exactly. he's missing a tentacle. Exactly. It's 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 good. I, again, I mean, it's I don't I, I found something like Inside Out to be just astounding on every level in terms of the way that it it fused this philosophical idea about how our emotions play into our identity with this really imaginative visual adventure. This one is a visual adventure with, with some some really compelling ideas, but it, but it's a softer movie. I think it's it's gentler in certain ways. And the takeaway isn't quite as grand, and I'm not knocking the movie for that per se. I just I don't see it as, as quite on the same level from a narrative standpoint. But Pixar sets these standards that are impossible. That's the problem. Yeah, you can't you can't compare this. I mean, to Inside Out. I mean, I I don't see you know it, it it is it is delightful, and and the the. There's a sequence where Dory, who is, you know, Ellen DeGeneres does a great job. Um, it, Dory's a fish. So how they deal with how the fish moves from place to place yeah. is this octopus. Yeah, right. Putting it in a jug or putting it in a bowl or putting it in a, a wash, you know, watering can or whatever it is. And, and it's, it's how they get from place to place. There's this great sequence where... Dory has to figure out how to leap onto these moving fountains and get into this other pool, and and there's a bird that's going to carry them. You know, it's just intricate and delightful. <laughs> Don't spoil it. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Well, maybe some fraction of the audience that feels like they're not into a Pixar movie at the moment will go check out Swiss Army Man, which is my <laughs> plug of the moment. A it's different audience. Another aquatic This is an older, film. more sophisticated, hey, R-rated audience. It's another, well, I don't even know if it, does it have a rating? Yeah, probably, but it's another movie that involves uh, people traveling through water in strange lands um, with Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe as, as a corpse that slowly becomes more and more animated. But I do think that it's kind of cool that those two movies are coming out together because... If you saw them together, they're both they're both doing things that I think are surprising in certain ways because they're operating with 
traditional genres and turning them inside out. And uh, there, there are many different ways in which that can work. Pixar does it on, on sort of through the lens of popular culture, and this movie is taking things that, that seem familiar and turning them into something more surreal and strange. And it's just kind of nice when you see a release schedule where there, there, there's that kind of experimentation happening on multiple different levels. So just to bring that idealistic point full circle from what I was saying earlier, this is a really good weekend to be a movie lover because there's just some really good stuff on, you know, for a wide variety of sensibilities. It's doing similar kinds of things in terms of reminding us why we like movies. But um, outside of that conversation, we also have to come to, uh, to uh, the Oscar situation because you've done some updates to your Oscar charts, and that means this conversation, as much of a quieter period of time as it is right now, is continuing. So Yeah, we put up our Oscar charts uh, this week. Um, uh, not all of them, just the main, you know. I think we actually put up the main categories along with uh, animation. Um, so Finding Dory and Zootopia and The Red Turtle, your favorite from Cam, right. are, are the front runners. It's quite in, a trio. In that race. And then we have um, over on, uh, there's basically three movies that have opened already, I mean, excuse me, that have been seen at festivals already um, that are in the running. And, and they, you know, we've talked about the um, Birth of a Nation, and there's Manchester by the Sea, the Kenneth Lonergan film, which is a really devastatingly sad, tragic, extraordinary movie. Um, and then there's Loving from, from Cannes. So those three seem to be the ones that are uh, leading the field at this point. Which is, which is so fascinating when you think about it. A, 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 the story of a slave revolt up against the sprawling, tender story of a man... You know, overcoming his tragic past with Manchester, I mean, they couldn't be more dissimilar in some ways. But also, I mean, these are not. I guess Birth of a Nation is in some ways a traditional it award has a season scale, game. A yeah, it's got scale, but because it's you, you. You always wonder. You know, the 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 indies are the ones that we get to see first. Um, the ones that are going to be released by the subsidiaries. Right. What's going to really shake things up when the studio stuff we drops? We will see what happens. You know, you, you had a meeting at Paramount today. Maybe we're going to find out when the Martin Scorsese movie's coming right, out. Right, right. A Scorsese movie showing up in December, as we learned with Wolf of Wall Street, is not something you just take for granted. Anything and, can happen. You know, he fusses around in the, in the editing room, but if he gives them a sense that it's ready, that just as Warren Beatty finally sort of raised his hand and said he was ready to, to finish his Howard Hughes movie. And then The Fences, Denzel Washington's. Uh, Presumably will be finished in time with Viola Davis. I saw them on Broadway. I saw that. Mm-hmm. It's it a great play. So there great you go. Revival. Well, who needs the movie when you have the play? No, no, no. We, we want more people to see it. That's One the whole idea. If they make Hamilton into a movie, we, we, you know, we more people can see it. You may have to wait for the movie, Eric. I may have to just go listen to the soundtrack on Spotify right now. <laughs> Actually, they announced today that Wicked... Um, is finally going to be made into a movie. What they did in that case, I have to assume Hamilton will do something similar, is they just waited and waited and waited for it to play out around the world as a play, as a hit play that was going to make lots of money. Those things make money. 
which is, of course, the only thing we care about in this <laughs> business. So I, I suspect it'll be a while before we see a movie <laughs> of Hamilton. In any case, it's great seeing you here, Anne. And uh, next week, we'll, uh, who knows, I guess we, we could spend the whole time talking about Independence Day or something like that. But anything's possible. We've got a lot of things right around the corner as we make our way into the summer. So until then. Later. Thank you.